not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I'm holding space for Danielle Gregorich, and Danielle is a survivor, in capital letters, underscored, highlighted, bolded. Yeah. (laughs) Comic Sans font, all of it. And (laughs) she's here today to tell us what that word means to her and to share her story of recovery. Uh, Danielle's also... uh, the author of a really cool daily guide. It's called Stroke of Sobriety, The Essential Daily Guide, a set of daily inspirations to help other people stay the course and not give up during their first year of sobriety. So to you, Danielle in Arizona, hello from snowy Canada. Nice to chat with you. (laughs) Definitely no snow on the ground here. I think it's like 75 and it's absolutely beautiful. Just to be jealous. <laughs> I have, I'm not joking. I literally have on two pairs of pants and two shirts right now. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think I could manage that whatsoever. That would be miserable. But um, whatever, you can move down here. We have tons of people from Canada. We are always welcoming new people. <laughs> Well, it's ski season starts tomorrow, so I'm not going anywhere except to the mountains right now, but I do enjoy escaping to the sunshine when I can. But I'm really glad to talk to you and get to know you today, so I'm really happy you're here to share your story. So I am going to turn the mic over to you, Danielle, and ask you to tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Thank you. Um, this is such an honor and I love the fact that you, you hold space for so many amazing individuals. So, um, there are so many, uh, different layers to my story. Um, there are several serious health, um, concerns and issues that I've overcome, but there's just a lot. So I grew up in an upper middle-class neighborhood and I grew up in an alcoholic home. And the living in an alcoholic home has its different challenges. Uh, my, I have many memories of my mom um, bouncing in and out of rehab. She, you know, would get a little bit of sobriety under her belt and then go out. And it, it was just kind of an endless cycle. I think I knew that I was an alcoholic uh, way before I, I ever picked up my first drink and and my mom basically, um, stressed the importance of, you know, if you drink, you're going to become an alcoholic. She was definitely correct in that assumption. I drank an entire bottle of vodka on my very first drinking escapade. And, um, I drank alcoholically from the age of 12, um, until 34. I, I come from a long, 
history of secret keepers. I learned at a very early age to keep secrets, um, not only my secrets, but all of my family's as well. I knew I, I knew how to ensure that the outside looked amazing. Did my makeup beautifully? Um, I dressed amazing because I knew if I, I did that, then nobody would come and ask me any of the hard questions. So keeping up that facade has always been incredibly important to me. And you know what? To be honest, it, it worked really, really well until it didn't. And that's typically how it goes. I was kicked out of my parents' house at the age of 18 after I graduated high school. I drove um, my 1988 clunker of a car to New Mexico. I had an ex-boyfriend who lived there and I didn't have any place to go. My All my friends were going to college. They had their whole life set up for them and, and I really didn't have anything. And Shortly after uh, moving to New Mexico, I, I quickly figured out why that ex-boyfriend was an ex-boyfriend for a reason, and I ended up finding these guys, and they lived at a frat house, and I ended up living with them, and, and that, it was actually a great time, um, and nothing horribly happened. Horrible things happened to me um, living there, but I loved it. But shortly after moving there, I ended up in a high-speed police chase, and that chase um, ensued because I had been kicked out of a nightclub, and I basically took off, and that police chase ended because I had smashed my face through a telephone pole, and it ended. I ended up waking up in jail and I ended up pleading guilty to charges, which I didn't even recall whatsoever. And I had an, an amazing boss at the time. And I told him, you know, what had happened. And, and he hired a, a fantastic lawyer for me and come to find out I had been roofied at that nightclub. And so it makes sense why I didn't recall anything. That lawyer helped me get all of the charges dropped. And that was my, my first experience with God, because I, I quickly realized if if he can work a miracle like that, you know, he can work anything. And so after the charges were dropped and, and everything had subsided, I, I left New Mexico and I moved back to Arizona and I, I met my husband and I met him at a company dinner. A coworker brought him as her date and he was so good looking. <laughs> he still is. And, um, I, after like the next Monday after the dinner, I asked her, you know, are you guys, you know, a thing or are you just friends? And she's, they're just friends. And so I ended up messaging him and asked him if he wanted to go and get drinks. And we've basically been together ever since. And uh, shortly after we began dating, about nine months into it, um, I found out I was pregnant, which was a complete shock to me because I had been told that I, I was unable to have children whatsoever. I had suffered multiple miscarriages prior to that, and uh, the doctors basically said, you're unable to carry a baby full term. And I found out I was 16 weeks pregnant, and that was, that was a shock. And I 
my son was born at 32 weeks. So he was born not breathing. He only weighed three pounds. He was blue and he was lifeless. And my initial thought when my son was born and I didn't hear the cries, I was happy. I thought that God had worked another miracle because I didn't want to be a mom. And he ended up being resuscitated. He was airlifted to another hospital away from me. So I didn't have that initial bonding. I already um, was struggling with not being, not wanting to be a mom. And there was just so much trauma that was compounded. And I didn't have a way to digest it. And so I immediately had postpartum depression just from the get-go day one. And it wasn't baby blues. I, I hated my life. And I ended up staying in the hospital for a week after my son was born, but he was at a different hospital. And I remember I just was counting down the hours. I wanted to get out of the hospital so I can go and drink. I knew if I could get a drink in me, then I would be okay because that was my solution to everything. And so I had several um, suicide attempts after he was born, several inpatient stays, and never once did I stop drinking. Drinking was my solution. It was not the problem. My husband, uh, he's in the Air Force, and he was getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan. And I, I was basically shocked because I, I realized that I was going to have to be the sole person that's going to be responsible for, for my son. And I just couldn't do that. And so I think I strategically decided that if I were to get pregnant, I could stay sober for his duration of his deployment. And so we, we tried to get pregnant and we had two weeks to get pregnant before he was getting deployed. I just, I didn't think that it had worked. I basically, you know, took a pregnancy test, I think two weeks after he left and the, you know, the stick came up, I wasn't pregnant. So, you know, game on. And so I continued to drink the way that I had always drank. But this time I had thought I was just hung over each and every morning. Shockingly, no, I was not hung over. It was morning sickness. <laughs> and uh, when uh, my husband was deployed and I found out that we were having a girl, I was like, oh gosh, this is, this is bad. Um, because I was not any woman for anybody to look up to. Like a little girl should never look up to me as something to strive to be. And so I was terrified. My daughter was born. She was the day after I turned 30 years old and she was born perfect. And I had that bonding. I had those feelings of joy and happiness and everything that moms had told me they had experienced when a child was born. Um, and I was so, so happy. And, you know, I, I remember sitting in the hospital holding her and I'm like, you know, this is going to be different. I, I can, I get a do over and I'm so happy. And that, that happiness and that elation was pretty short lived. Shortly after she was born, I found I had kidney cancer and I was so devastated and I was so pissed off at God because how dare he 
I am trying to get my life together. Doesn't he see what I'm trying to do with kidney cancer? I, I was introduced to a new love of mine and that was painkillers. And when I was released from the hospital, uh, I quickly realized that Percocets helped me drink the way that I wanted to drink. And it perked me up so I could be functional and I could be available for my daughter. So I thought, and, uh, I had to become a stay at home mom after the kidney cancer because I had so many doctor's appointments and, you know, it, it really worked for quite a while and I was functional and, and I was like that mom that did things, took the, the library and all of that stuff. You know, that's the thing with this disease. It, it just works until it doesn't. With the introduction to the painkillers and the alcohol, again, it, it basically made my disease take off in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And we ended up moving to a new home in 2016. And that move rocked my world. I, I wasn't mentally, physically, emotionally prepared for the feelings I was going to feel around it. And, you know, shortly after we moved, I had another uh, suicide attempt. And that was in December of 2016. And the feelings around that suicide attempt were, it was shame and guilt because I should be so happy. Look at this amazing home that my husband has provided me. I could, I have everything a woman could want, but I was so miserable and I was truly incapable of describing that kind of misery because I didn't have any sort of tangible reason to be as miserable as I was. I ended up taking a bottle of Seroquel and I, I overdosed and my husband came in the room and he found me and he called the ambulance and I, they came and I had to be Narcan'd and, you know, I was brought back to life and I, I woke up in the hospital and, and I was pissed um, because I, like I am a failure and that just that shame and that guilt was just ruminating over and over. And I wish that I had gotten sober in 2016, but that wasn't the case. Uh, I ended up walking into the rooms in 2018. And when I walked in, it was out of pure desperation because I had tried all of the other avenues to get sober. I had tried all of the rehabs, all of the therapists, all the psychologists, like everything. And nothing had worked. And so walking in the rooms was basically like my Hail Mary. But I knew for some reason that I, I needed to give it a shot. Shockingly, it worked. And shortly after entering the rooms, um, I thought my life was going to become amazing. And I'm sober. And this is gonna, I'm going to do this deal. And no. <laughs> God decided to throw me another curveball. Uh, I suffered a massive stroke in June of 2018. And that stroke took my ability to speak, read, and write um, completely away. And the neurologist basically told me that um, 
more than likely that these inabilities will, will not come back to you. And I said the most sincere and honest prayer that I'd ever said to God. And I basically said, you know, if you give me these abilities back, I will spend the rest of my life helping the hopeless and desperate. I didn't know how that was going to be possible, but I made that promise. And I was seeing a speech therapist who suggested that I start writing to stimulate brain function in order to hopefully regain these abilities back. And shortly after I started writing, I I regained those abilities in August of 2018. And I started publicly writing about my sobriety. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I didn't have any sort of expectations, but through that writing process, it launched me into the book that I just published. And, you know, that morning routine has been so crucial and critical for my sobriety. And I figured um, there's somebody out there who doesn't feel like their life is going to get better. They cannot imagine living life sober. And my my hope and my encouragement with through writing this book is that, you know, just stick with it. I promise you, I promise you it will get better. I don't care how hopeless and how desperate you are. If it's possible for a drunk like me, it's possible for anybody. And I was one of those people that just didn't think it was going to be possible. I'm a true testimony and a walking miracle that um, we can survive things and and we could do the hard things. And I absolutely love my life today. Um, You know, just a small kind of meaningless thing for me, each morning I wake up, I'm actually excited that I woke up. And I, I, that's probably doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but that's all that I wanted with sobriety. I just wanted to wake up and be happy. And, um, I do each and every day. It's such a gift. This sobriety and this life is a gift. And I know more than most people my age that tomorrow is not promised. And so do the things that you need to do today because you can wake up tomorrow with the inability to speak. I know that with certainty. Often I ask guests when they have comorbidities, so someone that talks about having an eating disorder and alcoholism or a gambling addiction and alcohol use disorder, you know, we'll talk about what order do you heal things in? How do you peel the onion? For you, you know, you have your your childhood, you have your health, you have your mental health, you have your sobriety. And I'm wondering, do you see your recovery as one whole package? Or do you work on those things individually? So, you know, you're do you still do physiotherapy? Do you go to do you go to therapy for emotional healing? What are all the pieces in your recovery? <laughs> There's so many pieces. Um, I definitely do a 12-step program, and that has been a huge aspect. But I um I've also 
done a lot of inner child healing and a lot of therapy in regards to in utero trauma and kind of healing those aspects and forgiving people who were just as sick as I was. And it's for me personally, I, I had to put my mental health number one. I basically lived in a doctor's office or a meeting or a therapist office my entire first year of sobriety. I had to peel back those layers, each one over and over, and I had to really dive in and do the the stuff that I had never done and I wasn't willing to look at before 2018. And there was a lot of different pieces to it and it, it was not pretty at all. What were some of the big lessons, some of the big paradigm shifts? Was it hard to even accept or suss out what parts were trauma? It's so funny because for me, I had always had a really, really high resting heart rate. My normal resting heart rate was 120 beats per minute. And every single doctor that I had been to basically said, you know, you're just an excitable human, you're passionate, you have anxiety. And so here's a pill, this will solve it. And so the stroke basically forced me to be my own advocate. I wasn't willing to have a doctor tell me, here's a pill, this will solve your problem. So I had, um, I have undergone two different heart ablations in my sobriety. My heart was actually causing the majority of these issues that I had had my entire life. I had been living in my brainstem in that fight or flight response my entire life. And so with the stroke, I finally had accepted the fact that some of this wasn't my problem and I can't accept all full fault at it. And that was a big, big healing part for me because I just used to beat myself up like, why am I doing this? Why do I drink the way that I drink? I had an epiphany as I was reading a Pia Melody book called Facing Codependency where she talks about ways of raising children that were commonplace and acceptable. Uh, I think, you know, in the 60s and 70s or whatever era, (laughs) probably (laughs) probably more situational and and, um, familial and regional. But my dad was raised in an era where parents would lock their kids out of the house all day. For us, I, I grew up on a farm. My parents were very hardworking. But but she points out neglect is traumatic for children. And it certainly was never abused by my parents. But I think the point is that even loving parents can cause harm unknowingly by doing what they're doing. And that the fact that they didn't mean to do it doesn't make it less harmful for the child or give us something to work on as adults. So um, without, without blaming my parents, I can look at this and say, oh, okay, like this, this constant need 
to to like look for someone to be in charge <laughs> or to live in this fight or flight mode of something's going to happen. It could really just come from the fact that maybe I didn't have quite the level of interaction that I needed. For me, that book was a real paradigm shift because it took the things that I thought were just normal growing up and gave me a new way to see them and helped me understand what I needed to heal. And it sounds to me like that awareness must have been times a thousand for you as you worked on this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, it absolutely has. You know, it's so interesting to me because I have um, done several different podcasts and I've done, you know, all the therapy in the world, but talking to another alcoholic, I have been, I've had so many aha moments because I never looked at the fact that I grew up in an alcoholic home as trauma. I, I never looked at it that way. I just didn't. And I just remember thinking like, why on earth do I drink the way that I drink when I didn't have, you know, sort of the trauma that I would expect people to have in my shoes, because, you know, I hadn't had the molestation. I hadn't had the rape. I hadn't had any of those things, but I felt so shameful. I felt so guilty and I just had everything and it was consuming me. And so realizing the fact that, you know, I didn't come from a loving home. I didn't have that warm, you know, soft spot to fall. And that that's a trauma response. And I truly believe that a lot of that is generational. And so I believe that all of it has been basically ingrained in the DNA. And so some of that has been passed on, you know, centuries and centuries. And so for me, stopping this cycle and standing in my truth and saying, this isn't going to happen any longer is so, so important to me. So some of the things that you mentioned, for example, you said that you were a very good secret keeper. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you considered that to be a strength until you started working on uh, healing mm-hmm. yourself. Was it hard to to flip the script on that, on some of those uh, characteristics? So difficult because, you know, I don't even think a lot of the times I even realized that I was leaving out information or just, you know, lying about really stupid things. You know, my husband would be like, you know, what did you do today? And I would say that I did these astronomical, amazing things when, to be honest, I sat in bed and like, he would be totally okay if I just said, you know, I was having a down day and, you know, I just kind of laid in bed and did some self-care. But no, in my alcoholic mind, I had to make up some sort of elaborate thing that I had done, but in all reality, I had it. But I think that that's a really learned behavior that I had experienced because, you know, laziness was not okay in my family. And so I, in turn, had to become this hyper, insanely overachiever. And I set the bar so high for myself that what I did is I basically set myself up for failure time and time again. And it was so exhausting living that way. And I still struggle today with it. And it's, it's a, an ongoing process. We'll say that. 
I always find it interesting too when I'm so focused on one priority, a misguided priority that I'm overvaluing and turning a blind eye to what it's costing me. So uh, wanting to appear, appear hardworking, not lazy, at the mm-hmm. at the price of honesty and not telling the truth. I I think listeners of this show will have heard me say more than once that it never occurred to me that if I was the only person that knew something, it was still true. To me, it didn't matter because I didn't right. value myself. I only valued what other people mm. saw. And uh, that is, I think, extreme codependency when truth is only what other people see. It's a survival skill, though, right? I feel like it's an overdeveloped survival skill. And as we value ourselves, we start to realize how much authenticity matters. Another question for you is comes back to something another guest had said that really stuck with me, which is that whatever age we were when we began drinking alcoholically is an age we get stuck at. You said you were 12. Yep. So does that ring true yep. for you? And you did mention reparenting yourself. You really had your work cut out for you if you have to go all the way back to 12 <laughs> and simultaneously be a mom. So talk about well, that process yeah, and yeah. what were some of the things that were really helpful to you as you as you did that? Oh, my gosh. And that's so, so true in my story. And it, I have a son who is in seventh grade today. And I just look at him. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine him doing the things that I did in seventh grade. It it just blows my mind. For me, that first year of sobriety, I was a hundred percent, a 12 year old. I had to rely on the women in the program to help me be a mom to help me be a wife because my initial gut reaction was to basically throw a a teenage tantrum. Everything was a crisis to me. Like the littlest thing is if I couldn't find a matching pair of socks, the world was over. It was so insane. But being a mom and parenting I I don't know if I, I I seriously, to this day, I don't know how I survived it. And my kids ate a whole lot of fast food that, cause I couldn't even cook. I, I didn't, I didn't know who I was at all. And I just was thrown in this role and I just felt completely naked and I felt awkward, but you know, you know, on the outside, nothing had changed, but everything had changed. Most people don't know that. And so, you know, living in this society where, you know, you're supposed to be this person when you're just trying to figure out who you are, it's, it was so difficult, but, um, now today it's so much better. And, uh, you know, still to this day, probably parenting uh, is my biggest struggle. That's, that's something that I still haven't sat into comfortably, but I'm really honest with my kids and, and I let them know that, you know, mom's, mom's struggling just the way you are. And so, you know, we can do this as a team, but we, we have to be honest with our feelings all the time. 
you're you're very candid about your response to parenthood and i mean i'm guessing that took a measure of healing before you could even really admit to those feelings as well or were you always able to speak no. so honestly no. about it no, no no i was not whatsoever because you know first of all i i cared about the opinions of others and so I didn't want to admit to anybody that I had no idea what I was doing being a mom. I had no idea. And, you know, admitting that I needed help, that was really difficult for me. Not only, you know, mental help, but, you know, if I couldn't, you know, cook dinner one night, I need to ask for help. Like, I'll tell my husband, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm mentally and emotionally spent. I cannot do it today. That's something I had been incapable of saying for my entire life because I am from the belief system, you know, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And I had lived my life, you know, forever that way. And what I had done is I had basically destroyed my soul catering to the expectations of others. And so this is all new, admitting that I don't know what I'm doing, and this is a struggle, and sometimes I hate it. <laughs> hmm. You mentioned that you're really frank with your kids about things and um, coming on podcasts, that kind of thing, to, to talk openly about it. How do you help your children understand that, that your reactions to the changes in your life that came with their arrival? Have you worked to help them understand that that's not about them, that that is about where you were at at that time? Or is that something that you're kind of tucking away for later? How do you view that? You know, as an, it's embarrassing to admit I have not approached the subject yet. Um, I know that it absolutely needs to be discussed and holding um, those secrets inside is only going to be detrimental to all of us. But I believe truly that, um, you know, children should not be involved in adult sort of situations. So I don't feel comfortable basically placing my shame on my son's shoulders, because that's what was done to me. And so when the time is right, um, I will absolutely have a candid and open discussion. But my son is such an empath. He would absorb all of that shame and all of that guilt. And I just, I'm not willing to, to have him feel like a burden. And and I think he still, he knows, you know, he's very intelligent, but it, it'll come down. But I think it needs to be um, in a controlled environment with a mediator because there's going to be emotions, but it definitely needs to be addressed. But we'll see when, uh, when it needs to be done. I can hear the conviction in your voice to the importance of boundaries and not control so much as consideration to how, how we talk to kids about things, because I think a lot of us might have been 
inappropriately asked to carry the emotional burdens of some of the adults in our life. Or I felt like I was a confident, confidant to someone older who was telling me their woes. And I thought, wow, I must be really special. I'm a really good listener. Right. And, yep. you know, it just so happened. No, I just was the one in the truck yep. <laughs> they were ranting at. And, um, it, you know, it really, it did take me a long time to sort that out and realize that wasn't right. So... It, it touches my heart to, to hear you talk about the consideration that you want to give having these kind of conversations with your kids and yet to still be able to talk so honestly. I had a really a tough birth with my oldest son whose 29th birthday was yesterday and it, it feels like how he was born yesterday. But, you know, I remember waking up after it was all over and being disappointed that I was still alive because oh. I it just, it, I mean, I was so happy to be a mom. I knew I should be happy, but to be honest, my gut reaction was that I can't believe that didn't kill me. And, uh, yeah. I, and I've always felt guilty about that. And to admit it is not easy. So, um, to hear you be able to express honestly, that initially you didn't want to be a mom. I just feel like there's so many people who felt the same way, but would never have had the courage to say that and to understand that we can admit to these (laughs) moments or these periods in our life and still heal from them. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's important for me to explain the reason why I didn't want to be a mom. I, I didn't feel equipped or qualified to be responsible for a human. And so when I was told at 18 that I couldn't have kids, I had basically signed that as an agreement for the rest of my life. And so when God decided to, you know, change the plan, I didn't have any control over that. And I'm a control freak. And so realizing that I'm completely powerless over almost everything was a really big struggle for me because I don't really have any control over how my kids are going to end up. For me, I have to look at my children as God's kids because that basically helps me to sit well in my soul, knowing that whatever happens to them, I don't have any responsibility in how they turn out. I can try my best, but ultimately, it's not my decision how they're going to end up. And that's how I'm able to kind of wrap my head around it and, you know, suit up and show up and try to be the best mom that they can have. But I don't know if I'm ever going to you know, hit the nail on it, but you know, I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) One of my neighbors told me once, you know, the, one of the best things we can do for our kids, aside from consistency is just let them know that we're their biggest fans. I know. Not to say that they can do no wrong or that we turn a blind eye. I mean, love them where they're at and and just keep showing up. (laughs) 
And I have those moments, you know, I, I did it to myself this morning. I was drinking coffee and staring out the window and thinking of like some mediocre moment of parenting from when my kids were teenagers, when I was like, oh, I don't think I did that well. I don't th I think I, oh my gosh, I should phone him. I literally had this thought. I should phone my 29 year old Aww. son and ask him if I did okay when he was 17. And, you know, <laughs> and then, then I thought, <laughs> Wouldn't that be terrible for him? Like that would be more traumatic know, than whatever know. I did. And, oh my gosh. And my mom still, you know, she does that today. You know, she ruminates on all of these things that, you know, she wishes she could, you know, have a redo. And, and that's, that's the weird thing about it. A lot of these experience that she has harbored, I don't even remember at all. It's just baffling. And I've learned that, you know, through, you know, making my amends, you know, when I show up and they're like, I don't even remember what you're talking about. Like, but I'm holding on to this, like for dear life. <laughs> it's so right. weird. Yes. And probably the things that you remember as being moments of your childhood, she may not remember. Exactly. I think it's the things that we do unselfconsciously or uh, just the times we give ourselves a pass as a parent when uh, we, we're right. really dropping the ball. But I guess the point is to always be willing to revisit this. And rather than phoning up my sons, even though I swear I, I wish <laughs> I could, but I know it's not the right thing to do and rehash all this old stuff. What I have told them is, you know, if there's ever anything you want to go back and work on, I'm there. I'm so happy to, I'll come to therapy or I'll, you know, no. if you ever want me to go back over something with you or I'm 100% open to it. In no way do I say that I was perfect and can't heal the right. past. And I think just knowing that, I hope that knowing that is helpful, but it's interesting to me that you mentioned your mom feeling that way. So mm -hmm. can you, do you mind, do you mind talking about no, your mom? Not. What are things like between the two of you now and how did that relationship unfold? Uh, <laughs> it, um, it has always been a very unhealthy relationship still to this day. And my mom is one of those people that has so many amazing attributes, just amazing, but she is incapable of seeing anything good in herself. And so, you know, when she puts a drink in her system, she becomes somebody that I want nothing to do with but I'm stuck with, that's my mom. And she basically, I'm the only kid that um, will speak to her. And I have learned to really, really, really protect um, myself personally. My boundaries um, have to be put in place no matter what, because I know that she is one of those people that isn't capable of dragging me down in that gutter with her. She's done it my whole life. And so getting sober, 
and, and realizing that she has the same sickness as I do. But she definitely knows where the solution is, but she's just not willing to go there. It, it's a really um, kind of murky, messy sort of relationship. But I, I really have to protect myself because I cannot get involved with her any longer because it takes me out of being present for my husband and my kids. So I, I really have to just love her where she's at. And that is one of the gifts that has, has sobriety has given me, just loving her where she's at, not trying to manipulate and control her to love me the way that I need to be loved. She's just incapable of it. And I'm totally okay with that. She wants to be this person, but she's just not. So what are the practical realities of having a relationship like that? Is it a, is it a phone call on birthdays? Is it dinner once a month? Is it, um, is it just an agreement to not be part of each other's life? Like what, what does that look like then? So um, the good news is, is that she no longer lives in Arizona. When um, after I think 22 years of marriage, my, um, my parents got divorced and she ended up moving um, to another state, which has been amazing because I have that separation, but we no longer communicate. We'll, we'll, I'll send text here and there. Um, and my go-to is I just try to keep it light and bright. I don't go into that darkness with her um, because I'll get suffocated. And I know that um, we may get to the point where we can have those really difficult discussions, but she needs to, you know, get some sobriety under her belt so that I can have those heartfelt conversations. But she's just not there right now. I, I have to be okay. You know, the most difficult day for me isn't, you know, my birthday or, you know, Christmas or anything like that. It's, um, it's Mother's Day. Because I, gosh, I told myself I wasn't going to cry this time. Ah, you know, for me, um, you know, I wish I had that, that mother-daughter relationship, you know, um, the social media. Oh, my mom's my best friend. And, and I'll never have that. And that's okay. Um, but Mother's Day is very, very difficult. How do you feel then about your relationship with your daughter? Do you have to stop yourself from overcorrecting <laughs> or idolizing, uh, you know, a sort of glorified reality? Or we, um, oh, my daughter, she's so cool, man. Uh, <laughs> she's a total Capricorn like I am. And so like I get her on a soul level, like we kind of operate the same way. Um, but she's a complete total daddy's girl. Like she loves my husband and, you know, she is a totally free spirit. She, she's, she just knows who she is. She is one of those, you know, natural born leaders. And I really just kind of sit back and watch her. 
because I don't try to manipulate or control who she is or what she's going to be. I just kind of take her lead. It's really interesting because I really don't put my own opinion on what I think she should be. I just let her do her thing. And and she's a remarkable, remarkable little girl. She's so funny. I love her. Sometimes the children in our life are the biggest teachers, aren't they? Uh, Well, my son, hands down, is my biggest teacher. Um, He challenges me and kind of shines a spotlight on where I still need to do work. Um, he's definitely my biggest teacher. Uh, he, he, he shows me um, how to practice <laughs> compassion and intolerance, but it is not easy because he is me to a T. And I'm like, oh my gosh, please let me love you. Stop pushing me away because that's what I did. Like I wasn't going to let anybody, doesn't matter if you're trying to help me. It doesn't matter if you're trying to be on my team, I'm going to do it my way and I don't care. Move out of my way. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, she's so much like me. (laughs) You know, one thing that has really been beautiful just this year that has transpired Finally, when they got out of, you know, the quarantine stuff and they went back to real school, my son, you know, will forget his headphones or something at home. And he doesn't hesitate to call me and say, hey, mom, can you bring this? That's a really big deal for me um, because I was so afraid to call my mom if I had forgotten anything. And he never hesitates to call me because he knows I'm going to get it for him. And I was never able to do that when I was drinking ever. I love that. I love that so much because I think it's one of the greatest gifts of sobriety is knowing that it doesn't matter if they need us at three in the morning Mm -hmm. or 7 p.m. or 10 a.m. You're going to be sober. <laughs> and you might be tired, but you're you're not going to be hungover, impaired. I mean, you're there for yeah. them. And just knowing that is such a gift to yourself and to your children. So I love hearing that. I so get that. Yeah. Please tell us about Stroke of Sobriety. Oh, you know, it's so funny because you mentioned, um, actually today's reading, uh, you said, love them where they're at. (laughs) That's actually, um, today's reading December 1st. So, uh, I know I'm like, as soon as you said that, I'm like, Oh my gosh, did you read this? (laughs) Um, so, uh, stroke of sobriety, um, basically came out of, I had started writing about my sobriety each and every morning on social media. And when quarantine transpired, there wasn't any sort of um, daily guide that talked about the hard stuff because let's, let's be honest, sobriety is hard. It, I mean, if it's not for you, I am so happy for you, but let me tell you how brutal and difficult it was for me, um, especially that first year. So I really wanted um, something that 
is out there that somebody can read and be like, okay, you know, I'm hating my sobriety right now, but that's okay. It's going to get better because, you know, I feel like, you know, the daily reflections or, you know, devotionals, it's just kind of fluff, but I needed something to, to read and to relate to. So I, I self-published it in less than 30 days (laughs) and, uh, every single publisher that I had spoke to about, um, doing this project with me basically said, you know, that's impossible. You are not going to be able to publish a book in less than 30 days. And, um, if you do self publish it, there's no way you will be a success. And, um, I'm one of those people, if you're going to tell me that something's impossible, I'm going to prove you wrong. (laughs) And, uh, I, I ended up publishing it on 11-11, which is Veterans Day, and the title of it is Embrace the Suck. That Embrace the Suck is a military term, and my husband used to tell me that anytime I would come home crying and sobbing, saying, like, I can't do this sober, I, I hate it, I can't do it, and she would just tell me day in and day out, embrace the suck, embrace the suck, and that's what I did. And shockingly, this little book that I had wrote just out of necessity became a bestseller, which still shocks me and still doesn't seem real. But I'm so grateful that um, people are enjoying it. And I feel like it's so needed. I think there's a lot of people who had to reevaluate their relationship with alcohol, especially during quarantine. I think a lot of people who thought that they were just normal drinkers may um, have found out that that's not the case. <laughs> and uh, I'm just really honored to, to be able to do it. And I can leave this as a legacy for my kids. And that's a really big deal to me. Well, that's amazing. Congratulations on your success. The book is called Stroke of Sobriety, The Essential Daily Guide, Embracing the Suck of Sobriety. and Tell our listeners how they can find you, how they can get your book, and where they can connect with you. Perfect. Uh, You can order the book on Amazon. It's exclusively on Amazon and just Stroke of Sobriety. And it is available in a Kindle version as well as a paperback. And you can also go to strokeofsobriety.com or oneandonlydg.com, and you can purchase it on either of those sites. And then my personal um, Instagram handle is oneandonlydg, and the one is spelled out O-N-E, and the other Instagram handle is Stroke of Sobriety. And I have a Facebook page, and that's about it. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your story and just taking the time to talk to me. We had a little bit of a hiccup (laughs) connecting with each other because of daylight savings time and all of that craziness. So I'm really glad that it worked out. It's lovely to see you. And I'm really grateful that you are well and sharing your story and shining your light. Thank Thank you, Danielle. Thank you so much. So listeners, I will have all of the links for Danielle's book 
and for her sites in the show notes. So look for them wherever you're listening to this podcast. You should be able to find all those links there. That's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back next week. And until then, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there. Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the old I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Just want to